Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. We've basically taken all of the technology, all of the components of an off-grid home solar system, and we've shrunk it down to a man-portable 26-pound, 29-pound system that's modular that you can take with you anywhere. So you can literally have portable solar generator anywhere you go. Hi, folks. When you think of residential solar, you probably think of solar installations that are tied to the grid. These installations have many benefits. You can rely on the grid when you need to. You don't need to store all the energy you generate in batteries, and you can sell energy back to utilities. But on-grid solar isn't for everyone, and our future surely requires some mix of on- and off-grid technology. To learn about the use case and business opportunity of distributed off-grid solar, I sat down with the founders of two growing off-grid solar companies. Arnold Leitner is the CEO of U-Solar, and Sean Lewengrath is the CEO of Energy Solar. Both Arnold and Sean have been in the industry for a long time and really helped clarify why off-grid solar matters, who it is for, where the industry is at, and where it's likely to go. Their two companies offer really different products, and understanding their differences really helped me understand some of the different applications for off-grid solar. And as it happens, U-Solar is actually in the final stretch of an equity crowdfunding campaign on Start Engine, which you might want to check out if you really like what you hear. Okay, here we go. Sean and Arnold, welcome to Invested in Climate. Very glad to have you here today. Nice to meet you, Jason. Nice to meet you, Sean. Yeah, nice to meet you, Arnold. I'm a, a fan from afar. I've been following you and you, Solar, and Jason as well. Your podcast is awesome. I'm honored and grateful to be here on, on the show with you today. Great. You know, I'm thrilled. I wasn't sure from all of our background coordination if you two already knew each other, but it's very cool to bring together two entrepreneurs working in this space and great that I'm sure you know of each other and now you get a chance to actually be in conversation. So, we're here to talk about a lot of different things, but really focused on the companies that you're building and the space that you're both operating in. And I'd love to get started just by learning about each of you and how you came to become CEOs and founders of your respective companies. Arnold, will you kick us off and share a bit about your history, the problems that you became interested in along the way, and how it led to creating you Solar? Well, thank you for giving me the chance. And with many of us, and I'm sure the same is true for Sean, you know, we have a history how we come to this. We just don't wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to start a solar energy company. In my case, you know, I was very interested in environmental issues when I was young and early on decided that 
of all the renewable energy technologies available to us, solar would be the most important and dominant one. And I came to University of Colorado at Boulder to work as a graduate student at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden, which is just down the road. That didn't turn out. Congress slash funding, I lost my position there as a doctoral candidate, and so I did a PhD in superconductivity. But I was lucky that in town in Boulder, there was a consulting firm that's now part of S&P Global. And I found a way to get back into energy as a general energy consultant, did very well for the company, made them a lot of money. And uh, that gave me a chance when the National Renewable Energy Laboratory came to our consulting firm asking for a study on solar to prove the merits of that as a utility scale generation source. I raised my hand and said, I'll write it. And you know, because I'd done well for the company, they allowed me to get on this tangent. And that study became fuel from the sky. It was the blueprint for the utility-scale development in the desert southwest and did a lot of good within the Department of Energy. You know, with that study, I returned to my passion and then founded my first company, SkyFuel, which had large-scale parabolic trough concentrators. We built a couple of demonstration units. But then, as many of you know, fracking came and crashed gas prices, which really undermined, you know, the kind of thermal solar that parabolic troughs deliver and turn into power. We had the advent of low-cost photovoltaics from China. And of course, we had Lehman Brothers. And all of this came at the same time. And you know, the result was we had to sell our company. And I also then at that point took a back seat and asked myself, well, you know, I've seen what the problems are of utility-scale solar in terms of land use, in terms of interconnection. What potential opportunities are there in distributed solar? And that led me to believe that there is another path. And jump below the head, but we get this certainly is, if the sun shines everywhere, why is all solar grid tight? That just made no sense at all. And so then my goal was, and similar to Sean's, on a different level of power, literally meaning kilowatts, I set out in this path to develop a system that we call independent power. So can work everywhere just like the sun. And that's what led me to found you solar almost 10 years ago. Fantastic. Thank you, Arnold, for sharing your story. Sean, what about you? Tell us about how you came to be Energy's founding CEO. I'm actually a refugee from Laos, from the Vietnam War. So my family and I literally escaped from Laos in 79 and were in refugee camps in Thailand and the Philippines. And fortunately, we were sponsored to come to the United States. And I grew up in the Bay Area. So I think, Arnold, you're in the Bay Area as well. So that's why pretty much my formative years was in the Bay Area. But I actually, you know, went to school and at in Utah at, B, at Brigham Young University, and then did my master's at Berkeley and Columbia, my MBA and so forth. But I actually have been working in tech most of my career in finance, and then more into more of the operations side. Again, not thinking that I would ever go into renewable energy, solar, and whatnot. But one thing led to another. I actually did my first startup. I actually left Apple and joined a Sequoia-backed startup in China, enterprise software. And then basically, after several years in China, came back to the United States and joined a late stage Kleiner backed startup. So again, worked in large companies, including Cisco and Oracle and PeopleSoft and Apple. And then I went hard to the other side to the startup side. In a lot of business, you come across people and you network and opportunities arise from these. And the opportunity came up where there was a startup in Idaho. There was a spinoff from a solar company and they wanted to do more of a consumer solar solution. And their ideal candidate for their founding CEO was 
someone who's got ties to Silicon Valley. Again, that's a lot of where the tech is, you know, cutting edge tech and so forth. Someone who's got ties to China, because again, we'll also source and manufacture that, you know, start producing out of China. And then someone who actually has ties in Salt Lake City or Utah, because the idea was eventually to move the headquarters from Idaho to Utah. And I checked all the boxes and I fell in love with the mission of the company. And the mission of the company, you know, Energy is a mission-based or purpose-driven company. And our mission is to provide the world with affordable, renewable energy from a bottoms-up perspective, from a consumer products perspective. And having been a refugee, having, you know, had the experience that I've had, I almost felt like it was my duty to go and actually go and jump in and try to get this off the ground because we wanted to provide solar to, you know, as they say, there's like a number that's thrown out, a billion people in the world that don't have access to energy, to electricity. And we want to basically, you know, tackle that problem and provide a solution for all those people to get access. And that's how I um, became the CEO of Energy. I mean, basically, we packed up from the Bay Area, moved out here to, to Salt Lake City. And yeah, that's how I became the CEO of Energy. Well, what a fascinating background. And thanks for sharing your history as a refugee. And imagine that makes the work that you're doing all the more rewarding as you're thinking about solar access, no matter who you are or where you are. So let's get into understanding your products a bit better so that everyone can really understand and picture what we're talking about. Sean, why don't you go first and tell us a bit about Energy's product lineup and also who your target customers are? At Energy, as I mentioned earlier, we are taking a bottoms up approach to solar, right? You know, we all have the goal and desire and ambition to, to democratize solar, to get solar to everybody. I think Arnold talked about, you know, the sun shines everywhere. How come we can't get solar everywhere? Well, our approach, again, I think similar to my experience at Apple, how, for example, the iPod, you know, the MP3 player existed, but how do we proliferate that technology to everybody? We make it simple. I mean, we make it a very simple consumer product. And that's the approach that energy has taken. So what energy, what our products are, what we describe as off-grid home solar systems in a box. We've basically taken all of the technology, all of the components of an off-grid home solar system, and we've shrunk it down to a uh, basically a man portable, you know, 26 pound, 29 pound system that's modular that you can take with you anywhere. So you can literally have portable solar generator anywhere you go, whether you're at home, where you can put your solar panels on your balcony or on your lawn, you want to have roof mounted or, you know, permanently mounted solar panels. You can just put our portable solar panels, which we sell as well, and just literally plug it in. So we describe our solution as mail order home solar. And so I like to paint a picture where you go to our website you order the system, it shows up basically in three boxes. The first box is the head unit. Another box is the battery. Another box is a solar panel. You open the three boxes up and you plug it in and it literally just works. And that's the solution that we're doing. And we're taking this bottoms up approach and trying to get this into as many people's hands as possible. Because again, the goal is to get more people to adopt renewable energy, right? And it's better for them, the customer, it's better for the community, it's better for the world. And Sean, let's go into details a bit more. So 26 pounds, that's not a lot of equipment. How much power can that provide? And is this intended to be supplemental to grid electricity? Or is this intended to enable an off grid lifestyle? We are passionate about our development process. We are a lean startup or agile or 
So we wanted to iterate. We start off with a hypothesis that people do want portable power that's very simple to use and so forth. And that's kind of where we started off is building these smaller systems just to validate if there is a market for this this level of power. And to answer your question, Jason, so our head unit, which houses the MPPT charge controller, which basically converts the solar power into a usable form that the battery can take, it's also got a 1,500 watt pure sine wave inverter. So again, 1,500 watt inverter doesn't power your home AC system. To help people understand what a 1,500 watt inverter does is you can actually plug your washing machine at home into our system and it'll actually do three full loads of laundry on one battery. Now, if you have multiple, a second battery, you can do six. You have a third battery, you can do, probably you can do maybe 10 because it's actually not linear. It's actually the more batteries you have, the more voltage, you know, stability and the power is a lot more efficient. You can power more, but you can't plug your electric dryer into it. I love the example of a washing machine. That's something we can all relate to really quickly because I want to turn to Arnold and to hear about you, Solar. But just really quickly, tell us how far along are you with growing the company with commercialization? We've been in business for about eight years and we have about 30,000 customers. We started off with three of us and now there's, you know, 30 plus. Yeah, again, the number goes up and down, but yeah, we've grown significantly, but we focus primarily on the direct to consumer channel because that's the most direct, you know, easy to get going that gives us the most options and does not make it too complicated. And yeah, and we're mostly in Canada and the US. You know, we've done a data visualization reporting and we've plotted where all of our customers are and we're literally everywhere in the US. I mean, we have customers in every state and most every major city. So yeah, that's where we've been. Great. Well, congratulations on the progress. 30,000 is a significant number of customers. So great to hear you've gotten that far. Arnold, let's hear from you. Tell us about Solar's products. What have you built to date and what do you envision building in the future? Well, thank you. I think a great way of juxtaposing to Sean's company's product is to share that we're just doing a project, a home, actually two homes, that have 150 kilowatts of power delivered by the power block. So it's a factor of 100 more than what Sean's company is doing. So that just want to frame a little bit, you know, the space we're operating. And I chose that space because I was very well aware of companies like, like Sean's and, you know, that deliver the kind of, I would call them, you know, solar home kits, right? They're in the single kilowatt range. I don't know, Sean, if you operate on 50 or 24 volt, you know, anyway, these are also relatively, you know, in our, in my language, low voltage systems. But if you want to go into higher power, you need to change the electric potential up to hundreds of volts for efficiency, cable sizing and converter sizing. And we found that there isn't really anyone in that market. And the reason is it's not easy, particularly if you want to make this as some kind of a consumer or electrician designed product, because at 150 kilowatt, you can cause some real damage to yourself and your equipment. So how do we deliver a product? How can we deliver a semi-truck you know, with a servo that, you know, a small person could also drive. And that required really asking yourself is what's the right topology? What's the right product design? And so with that, we have arrived at that. So I'm going, you know, telling the story a little bit backwards. So that's the product. It's ultimately a modular, very safe, high power system 
that operates now between 380 and 600 volts. We have a two-stage system now. And the target market for this is really currently the high-end residential market and small commercial market. Because, you know, 150 kilowatt is a lot of power. People that approach us right now are very big homes that have multiple car chargers. And we'll talk about them, why they're needed in a moment. Or small commercial retail stores, smaller grocery stores, grocery chains. And their interest is primarily not resilience, like the homeowners, but shaving peak power. And so we can deliver them, you know, 100 kilowatts or 50 kilowatt, whatever power they want to shave off. So in terms of the need is our customers are basically people for whom the grid is not cost effective because of peak shaving, isn't resilient enough, or for some other reason, isn't even there. The customers want to and have this idea, and we can deliver it, that it can live a normal life independent of the grid. That doesn't always meet mean without the grid, but in a way that if the grid wants to go away or is never there, it doesn't really make a difference. And that is what we have taken on, and we're doing very well in this market. It's been quite the engineering challenge, and we have solved it, and that's where we can go. And a little bit to Sean's product and even the lower solar lantern business, which is kind of a level below what you guys are doing. You know, the idea is with the power block, you can do work. You know, with the solar lantern, you can see what you want to look at. With Sean's, you know, solar kits, home power systems, you can keep yourself operating. You can keep some critical things running. With the power block, you can actually do work, meaning you could run air conditioners, you can do run your office work, or you can actually, you know, run small refrigeration units and, you know, for selling groceries. So that's the difference in what we do. But I will say, Sean, to your mission, I was very much driven by the same goal of powering democratizing the world. And behind me, which you cannot see in the podcast, but please come to our website, is the stackable version of the power block. So despite the fact that we can deliver a 300 kilowatt hour storage system with 150 kilowatts of power, it's hand installed by two people. Because no module, no unit weighs more than 100 pounds, plug and play. So that's really our product and our market. Arnold, thank you for that overview and also for helping distinguish between the different products in the marketplace. Tell us just briefly the company history and how far along you are in terms of commercializing. So we have been at this for a while, just like Sean. We have sold as many systems, but we have sold much larger systems. We have been selling since 2019, and now this year we hope to sell 35 systems for about $5 million worth of revenue. So it gives you an idea how large these systems are. We will be introducing the second generation power block or the dual bus with the two electric potentials in August, September of this year. And we're actually delivering only that power block now going forward because it has you know, so many advantages. So this year is really our big year of having multiple installations. We did six installations last year. We have a total of eight running, but this year will be 35. And then we try to go into the 100 or 200s the following year. Fantastic. Okay, so we have two growing solar companies that fall within the field of off-grid distributed solar, as in your products provide energy to customers without needing to tap into electricity grid. Let's talk about the importance of off-grid solar. Why is it needed? And how big of a role does it currently play? And what role will it play in the future? Sean, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so off-grid. So we, our technology and what we look at is actually, we'll call it developed country and developing country. So from a developed country perspective, like these are communities that have a very robust, you know, utility grid and, you know, power and so forth. From the perspective of, let's say, a developed uh, environment, off-grid to us means 
resilience. Because even though, for example, I mean, not to pick on Texas, but, you know, we thought Texas was pretty, was pretty solid, right? But then there's, you know, natural disasters or things that happen, and then it knocks out the power. You never know what will happen. And so for us, off-grid and having an off-grid solution means greater resilience in your, you know, the world that you live in now. In a developing country where, you know, either you have a, there might be electricity, but it's very unreliable, or you're even living in communities where there is no grid. Off-grid means the ability to, to prosper, to be able to have access to education, health, entertainment, just all those things that help enrich life. That's how we think of off-grid, why off-grid is such an important concept. And, you know, ultimately, it gives you flexibility, it gives you power, it gives you, you know, kind of options to do that. And that's basically what we want to do. We want to give people the option to have power wherever they are, whether they're on-grid or off-grid, it gives you that flexibility and power. Thanks, John. Arnold, anything you'd like to build? Yeah, we come from a different side to this. And I want to introduce a term that we prefer, which matches, we call it grid forming and high power grid forming systems. What's unique about this? Few people understand that the biggest problem for the grid isn't really energy production. Energy often gets sold at a negative price. You have people who get paid to take it, specifically solar doing noon. But what's valuable is, is firm power and power per se, high power. For example, the difference between the average power entering your home and your peak power in your home is a factor of 10. So the reason the typical solar battery system cannot power the entire home or people cannot run the home directly of solar, even if it was set up in an islanding mode, is because you're woefully outgunned by the amount of power your house needs. So the true transformation isn't, in our view, off-grid or on-grid power grid tight or non-grid, it's high-power grid-forming systems. Grid-forming only in a sense because it's naturally comes with it because that means you're no longer relying on the grid as the power source. This is getting a little complicated, but it's really what the underlying driver is. If you lift it all up, it's the physics underneath that's driving our market. And I'll give you a really good example of that. We have the electrified, the all-electric homecoming. And we have situations. I just got an email before we got on this call. pg e can only provide 320 ampere to the house. That's it. No matter what, they will have to dig underground. Well, the house wants to have 400 ampere. So it needs it for the car charge, induction stove, heat pumps. But we can deliver that power. Now, remember, there's plenty of energy flowing into this home over the 320 ampere connection because it's only one-tenth of the power required. So we have customers right now that we arbitraging for PG&E power. So, okay, PG can come in, charge you $125,000 to upgrade whatever service you have to 400 ampere, or you can go to your solar. For the same money, you get an independent power system. We still may source some energy from the grid, but we provide the 400 ampere. That's 100 kilowatt in this case. So some of our customers, it's, like a, it's a no-brainer. I can give $150,000 to $125,000 PG&E. I still pay their rates. I still have the resilience problems. Or give the money to you solar. I have all solar. I'm independent. I'm resilient. And, you know, I have choices about my energy sources. So that's a big driver. But that's not even unique. And it's actually a systematic one. And that's what we're banking our energy account company on is as homes electrify, this will happen spotty, right? You, Jason, may decide I want to have an all electric home. You're sitting in a neighborhood which is laid out for everyone getting 200 ampere. But suddenly your home needs 400 or, God forbid, 600. They cannot just rebuild the entire street 
for your 600 ampere. So they need to do something for you, and that's costly. When our divisions were built, everyone, you know, was getting started, the big boom, the 50s, 60s, everyone got to 100 or 200 ampere, and everyone built their American dream. Now the American dream is in restoration and rebuilding itself in terms of the home. And so we find an opportunity to be, no pun intended, a power company, right? A power provider. So, and that goes back a little bit to uh, Sean, because he's actually on the same playing field, the same story, because what will make a solar and renewable energy penetration in the world infinitely possible is that we deliver local power, that we on the grid or within the community move energy around whenever it comes trickle, like the windmill and the prairie that fills up the vat and the cows come in the evening and drink all at once. And so the critical path to this is pretty much on-site power and on-site high power. So that's really the physics underneath that's driving it. Whether it's on or off-grid, it's not really that important because the moment you deliver power independent of utility, you are off-grid. Or you call it independent power, you call it grid forming, these are different words. And that's really transformation we're seeing. So we're seeing something that's in the trillions of dollars driving this market. Because the choice is a central grid that delivers power or a mesh grid that delivers energy with nodes of power in homes and businesses. And I think anyone has ever thought of the internet will believe that a network is better than a central system. So that's really the driver that we see. Arnold, let's unpack this just slightly because I think everyone probably listening to this is comfortable with the idea that additional renewable energy is a good thing that provides more resilience, more power to those that are accessing it. Perhaps it also is the cost for the user, the homeowner. But most people that are shopping for solar are calling up Sunrun or the big solar companies. And I think what you're offering is a different kind of technology. And so help us understand really what is that difference and particularly from a user experience perspective of how does that homeowner actually experience your technology differently than if they were to call up one of the big solar companies that you know we see driving around in the vans every day yes so this entire grid tight solar business until now the advent of, of batteries for energy storage pretty much be based on the idea that i have a utility that will always take my energy they're a willing buyer and this was done through legislative regulation but the utilities do not want your solar power at noon when you're at your office, it has no value to them. There's no demand and there's so much of it. You know, but until then, you know, with the net metering, you know, about 40% of the energy is self-used by the home, 30%. The rest is net metered and comes back in the evening as coal or gas. But that's how we started the grid type business. It was great because we added energy on the margins to the system and at that point it didn't matter. As we increase penetration, it's important that we move energy storage and move production to the evening. And that's what all these Tesla, Sunvolt, LG Chem batteries are doing. And that's really becoming a package. But you're still grid tied, meaning all your power still comes from the utility. A three and a half kilowatt end phase battery will not run your home if you have air conditioning, if you have an induction stove, if you want to charge your car. The difference with the used solar product is that people basically have choice now. They're independent. They have an independent power system. They will source energy from the grid if their grid, we call it connected at this point, if they choose to. We have systems in Calistoga, for example, that during the summer months, say from June until September, will never even connect to the grid. There's a connection to the grid, but it never delivers any energy. But winter comes, if they don't want to use a generator or there's not enough solar, then the grid will turn on. So it becomes a much more self-reliant and you know lifestyle, and people enjoy that. And they like the idea that in case of a power block, because we're grid forming, the lights won't even flicker. Nothing will happen when the grid goes out or because you're never on the grid in the first place. 
So that's the difference kind of in a visceral experience for customers, which I like. Some great points, actually. So, and I think, you know, I think Arnold and I are actually trying to solve the same problem, you know, at different scales. One thing I'd like to call out is, you know, there's still a very low penetration of solar in the United States, residential solar in the United States, but actually a high, like we have roughly what, two, three million installations of home solar. Okay. A high percentage of that is actually grid tied, meaning that, and this is something that, you know, when I actually put solar in my home, I actually experienced this personally and I understand it that because I asked the solar company, so, you know, and this is in the Bay Area. I was like, okay, so when PG&E goes out, my solar systems will power my house, right? And the sales rep had to actually explain to me, no, so I'm sorry. If PG&E goes down, we have to shut down your solar system because we don't want to pump power back into the grid because it might, you know, harm one of the people who are repairing. the. So that's one of the dirty secrets of the solar industry is most of your systems are grid tight unless you have battery backup. And that's off-grid. So grid-tied versus off-grid is this. And so, again, we want to give people a choice. I think, you know, Arnold talked about this as well, is when the grid goes down, you still have the ability to keep your critical loads, your essential appliances going. And that's one of the things we want to give people is that choice. You know, we describe, another way we describe what we're selling is basically an insurance policy against blackouts. And again, different levels of power, right? You know, Arnold is giving you insurance policy for your whole home or your small business. Us, we're giving you insurance policy for your medical equipment, you know, your CPAP or your oxygen concentrator. Or it could just be that your refrigerator or your freezer, that you don't want it to lose your, you know, your food, right, to go bad. And that's another aspect of grid tied versus versus off-grid. One of the reasons I love talking to entrepreneurs so much is because you often have a view and vision of the future and what the future should be. And in some ways, what you're describing right now is an energy system that's in transition and maybe struggling to catch up with possibility or struggling to provide enough renewable energy, especially as homes electrify and there's more demand. And it makes me wonder, what will the long-term future actually be? What will the right balance of grid and off-grid renewable power be? You think about it in terms of relation to your companies, but broader picture of what's the right portfolio or mix that ultimately as a society should be aiming to. There's another aspect that's coming in that it's not just only renewable energy being intermittent and at times that's not correlated with use. That's a challenge for the grid as a whole for energy distribution. And that's why on-site, as we call on-site power versus network power, is so important that we can move the energy accumulated in the home or you know or near the load, but that's in the home, whether that's on a you know on a subdivision level or in a large commercial building, that's all the same idea. And then deliver that load with high power because remember when I mentioned earlier, and I hope I did, that residential demand is going to double on the electric home. That also means that peak demand is going to double. Now we have plenty of line capacity to move energy around. We just said it's a factor of ten, so we're not going to exhaust it. But the peak demand is going to be critical. So. We want to move the energy to the load so that the power delivery, the peak demand can be right there and doesn't run over the transmission distribution system, which is really an enormous cost driver for the grid system. All those lines out there in your backyard are not to move energy in your house. They deliver instantaneous power when you turn on that 15 kilowatt induction stove on Thanksgiving. But there's one other element that is direct current. Anyone who has paid attention realizes the only alternating current device they actually remember using is the vacuum cleaner. 
Everything in the house that is, you know, it's always in a wall ward, right? It's always a power adapter, the iPhone or whatever you want to charge. And the problem is, the reality is it's an ACDC world. There's DC solar panels, the DC batteries, everything is all electronics are DC. There's really a thing that's overlooked that has nothing, it's also different electric cars. When you produce alternating currents, you're pounding the battery at 160th of a second in a cycle, on, off, on, off, on, off all the time. That creates harmonics that degrades the battery in a way that we don't have really have data on. It's very different from electric cars that draw direct current. So what's the solution to this? There's three loads in the home that are never, no one has ever seen the outlet to that should all move over the direct current. In this model where the batteries with direct current are in the house, that's induction stove. No one has ever pulled, I mean, few people have ever pulled the stove and looked at the plug. That's the heater dryer. And that's the, the heat pumps that are replacing soon by law, gas furnaces. If we address those, we take care of about 70, 80% of the power needs in the home. They all run DC. That means our inverters can become much smaller and also the drain and the life cycle you know, demands on the batteries go down. So there's an, another element to all of this that despite, aside from renewables, we also move into the direct current world especially with batteries. And until recently, all of those attempts to go direct current have basically failed because why would I get a direct current washer dryer if I'm getting alternating current from PG&E, right? It just never took off. But now we have a very large, high-cost piece of equipment in the house that's valuable, that has life cycles. So now the idea of replacing some of the high-power loads with direct current supply becomes of interest. So that's why the power block, for example, by Norm also delivers 380 volt direct current, which is a new emerging standard for direct current power in the home and business. Thank you, Arnold. I'm thrilled to ask the question. Sean, what about you? Any view on what the future should or will look like? Yeah, I, I fully embrace what you started describing, which is a world where you have you know, large centralized power that provides the core. I mean, I think the reality is the infrastructure is pretty much set, right? I mean, as you build new communities, yes, you have an opportunity to upgrade, but there is a core infrastructure that's already built and you can't you know, dig up everything and relay new wire and so forth. So how do we allow, let's say the Bay Area, how do we allow the Bay Area to continue to grow and still have the same infrastructure, which is the power, the problem that PG&E, the utility in the Bay Area is tackling is how do I upgrade my infrastructure. Well, one of the things that that we feel that we can help utilities all over the world is you can actually support even more customers by having a distributed and a central model where you're complementing the kind of the central, you know, power that that's created and again, you can actually have the distributed generation or storage and you can actually tap into that to actually supplement the central grid and vice versa, where if you need distributed, you, the central grid can actually help the distributed when there's less sun, there's less wind, whatever. Our vision is that there is a need for both a central grid and a distributed grid. And I think having the two actually makes a much stronger. I think the world and most societies have been focusing on the capital intensive infrastructure projects. But like I said, we're trying to tackle the problem from a bottoms up. And it's not replacing it. It's actually complementing it. And I think that's the solution. 
This is excellent, Sean, that you clarify this. I want to first say that we're not suggesting, and Sean wasn't saying that we did, but I want to clarify for the listeners, we're not suggesting to dig up and lay out direct current lines in our neighborhoods. No, we rely on the existing AC network, but within the home. And you know, and your furnace and some of these things are usually right there where your breaker panel is, right? You know, it's a few conduits you have to run to power these devices I just mentioned. But the point that Sean makes is excellent in the sense that call it grid-forming, off-grid power, the kind of work that we both do, and the central grid are actually not in opposition. It's not, you know, one against the other. As a matter of fact, if you bring them together, you make a much stronger system. And that's what I was trying to refer to, that network with nodes, right? You want to, what you really want to transform, transform the power grid to an energy grid. Now, of course, for lots of people, industry it will remain a power grid, meaning instantaneous power is coming from utility. But especially on the grid edge, which is really where the costs are, right? Those few homes or the neighborhoods where you have to spread the power out. If there are nodes of power, you know, peak power inverters that can deliver those loads, it will make the grid stronger, including, of course, the storage ability, right? That we have energy on the edge of the grid, which can also then be injected into the grid and shared with others in the community to some type of dispatchable batteries which are already existing. Arnold, you brought up costs, and let's use that as a segue to talk about just the barriers that you're facing. You both have technology that's developed. You've got a clear vision of the future and how your technology is part of that. You're in the process of commercialization. What are your key barriers? Is cost a main concern and part of what you need to overcome? We know that there's substantial tax credits for residential solar. Do your products qualify? Tell us about the pathway to scale and really what's keeping you up at night and what the barriers are. Why don't we start with Sean? Yeah, for me, what keeps me up at night is for us as a company, getting enough inventory. It is a hardware, you know, kind of inventory. I'm sure Arnold has similar concerns. I think from a general macro level, how do we solve or how do we achieve our mission, which is to provide, you know, renewable power to everybody? And the answer is really affordability. If you go look at a Tesla Powerwall, and Tesla is great, right? It's definitely, it's kind of elevated the visibility of battery backup. And so, but if you look at the Tesla website, it's like, what, a $6,000 system? But we, having been a spinoff from a solar company who installs these systems all the time, it is not a $6,000 system. You actually have to install separate inverters. You actually have gateways and, you know, solar. You're going from, uh, you know, not 6,000, but maybe 16,000 to maybe 26,000. That's very expensive. But again, I think in contrast or in comparison to Arnold, we're at different scales. Our solution is from a bottoms up to make it really affordable. And to make it even more affordable is one of the things that we would love to see to, to change the paradigm is maybe more subsidies because the income tax credit or the tax credit on the solar really help proliferate, really help this to catalyze the adoption of solar. I'd like to see incentives as well to help get everybody, you know, one of these smaller systems so everybody can use it, not just the homeowners. Thanks, Sean. Arnold, what about you? Question is always on cost is what are you competing with? You know, what's the alternative? And so for many of our customers, it would be a generator. And generator energy is about a dollar per kilowatt hour. For as I mentioned, for some of these customers that are trying to upgrade their lines, they can say, okay, give 125000 also PGE, I continue paying their rates, continue to have their intermittent power, or I can give that same money to your solar and have no energy costs for the next 10 years. So it's not always as simple in our business as comparing rates with what the solar panels would produce on the roof. 
well, aside from competition, others that offer similar products at the same price. That is, of course, not a really a strategy to make a wholesale complementary energy system in the world that can compete with and in a way that we envision it, right? Being these nodes on the grid edge, because at some point, you know, things are going to come and connect to each other, literally, financially and technically. So the question then is really, what's the cost of delivering peak power? What does a utility cost to live at peak power? So the whole discussion when you talk to solar people, oh, my energy cost is this and that. Yes, because you can get paid energy. But if you were being paid for power, like firm power, as we call a utility, you would get nothing for your solar energy. This has no value to the energy markets. It has value because you know the public regulators decided to do so. And it's a very important. I'm so, so 100% supportive of what we've done with the solar industry over the decades. So once that discussion comes in, you'll find a very different analysis. So if someone says, oh, you know, I'm paying, you know, 25, you know, five cents per kilowatt hour here. And how with your 35 cents, how are you going to be competitive? Well, there's a hookup fee, right? That is part of basically the power equation. Did you take that into your energy cost and so forth? But the goal is still, let me just say, we want to get to below 20 cents per kilowatt hour on an all-in cost because that's kind of holy grail, you know, 15 to 20 cents for, you know, reasonably priced utility power around the world. And then you can go anywhere and you can avoid all the other, you know, discussions that include these external costs that affect power delivery. So that's really, I think, you know, 15, 20 cents per kilowatt hour levelized cost of energy, as we call it, while delivering firm power, right? High power, not just energy. That's kind of where we need to go. And I think there's a path to that completely. And we are almost there right now. One thing that I noticed that was interesting as a similarity that both companies share is that you both were successful at using investment crowdfunding to help fund your businesses. And often we're hosting conversations with founders that are working with traditional venture capital. And I'm curious about your experience with crowdfunding. Why did you go that route? And was it helpful? And also, have you been successful at really leveraging the numerous investors that you have as helping build and grow the business in your profile? I think whoever came up with crowdfunding needs to win a Nobel Prize because Arnold, I, one of the things that I actually have a mental note to follow up with him on is his experience with equity crowdfunding. Our company, Energy, actually got its start from product crowdfunding on these platforms like Kickstarter or Indiegogo. Energy actually got its start from Indiegogo. We actually put our first version one product out there and we pre-sold $800,000 worth of that product. You know, we had hundreds of customers actually give us $1,500 for our basic system to start off with. And they gave us a total of $800,000. And that allowed us to get our manufacturing operation, our fulfillment operation, get the company started. And that's, I believe that's brilliant because why crowdfunding is because, you know, wisdom of the crowd, right? I mean, implied or inferred in that is that if you have a solution or an offering that meets people's needs, they will vote with their pocketbooks, right? They will give you the money. And that's the principle of crowdfunding is you present a solution or an offering that solves people's problems, they're willing to give you money for it. And so, yeah, we actually started off, like I said, on a product crowdfunding, and then we did it ourselves. We did pre-sales. The next version, we did the next version of our product. And we did, again, you know, we did 4 million in pre-sales. People gave us $4 million, again, one customer at a time, and in a sense, it is investing in the company. And again, we feel like this is a great way to, to actually help grow the company. We also actually have raised a venture capital. We have angel investors that have given us money, and we're actually now raising a Series A. But I think, you know, looking at successful companies that have done the equity crowdfunding, you know, Usolar, this is an announcement that we're actually going to be following in uh, Usolar's footsteps. We're going to do equity crowdfunding as well. 
not necessarily to raise the capital, but we actually, in the spirit of democratizing access to investments into clean technology, we want to allow our customers to actually invest in us to be able to participate in the growth and the kind of the innovation. If they, I mean, our customers tell us they love us. They, you know, we want to give them an opportunity to invest in us, maybe 500 at a time or 200 at a time. And that's the beauty of equity crowdfunding. Thanks, Sean. Arnold, let's hear about your experience because it's something that you've done a couple of times. Yeah, of course. I looked at product crowdfunding, right? And you invest in the company. For this, you receive one of their products. It doesn't work when your product size is like $25,000, $50,000. So I, you know, I was frustrated by that. And I'm happy to share in a moment why venture capital didn't work for us to date and did work for my first company, also in a different time. But let's go to how I found equity crowdfunding. I brought in angel investors from all the world, mostly the United States, but also international from Indonesia, Singapore, people that understand the challenges. But that at some point, you know, I needed just to get to the next level. You know, it didn't help me to have twenty-five or $15,000 here and there. We needed to build something technically relatively demanding, as Sean probably can appreciate and anyone who has done this kind of work. I was one of the finalists at the Cleantech Open event in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, there's these breakout sessions and one said, I'll turn the funding. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'll be in that session. I mean, there's no question about it. About it. And uh, someone introduced equity crowdfunding. And I first didn't understand what, you know, because I knew the type of Indiegogo or Kickstarter crowdfunding. And this, the representative there is the current vice president of Start Engine. And he explained the concept. And at first, I, this was all new to me. And then I wasn't quite ready because I felt we needed to have a product in the field, something more tangible. So I gave it a year, but then in during the, at the beginning of the pandemic, we, we launched a crowdfunding campaign and, you know, we just blew it out the water, but it was a confluence of a couple of things, pandemic, new product, new platform. So yeah, I was super successful at the time. Great. And Arnold, having done now two equity crowdfunding campaigns, about how many investors have participated? We have through the platform, I know pretty accurately, 2,000 investors, a little over 2,000 investors, and some of them are customers. Similar to Sean, there's a lot of people for whom the investment in Use Solar as a product is aspirational. This is what they would like to have if they could afford it. So a little different from Sean. They can afford it and they're buying it. But nonetheless, I would say every single investor in Use Solar, someone said, if I had the money, I definitely would get a power block. That motivates them. Arnold, Sean, thank you so much. Been really thrilled to hear about the products and the companies that you're building. For listeners whose curiosity you've piqued, I'm sure we will include links to your websites in the show notes. But beyond that, is there anything else that you suggest listeners do to learn about distributed off-grid solar? If you're interested in the product, please come to our website at www.usolar.com. Or if you want to be also an investor in the company, we have an ongoing crowdfunding campaign that will officially close on March 15, midnight Pacific time. You can find us on Start Engine. Just search for Usolar and we welcome you to check out our hopefully very interesting campaign page and become an investor and hopefully also a customer. Thanks, Arnold. Sean, what about you? Yeah, for us... Our solutions are like $1,500, you know, to start off. And I think if you're interested in trying and, as they say, being involved or participating in this rooftop revolution or solar revolution, try it. You know, just you can buy a system, you can experience it yourself, and then you will see, you know, first, I know you will value electricity a lot more. And then you'll see the type of solution that is out there that you can actually be independent. And, you know, as I mentioned, we are also about to launch a, an equity crowdfunding OnStart engine. And so please, if you want to be participate in our growth and, and proliferation of these solar solutions, 
please support us and visit us as well. www.energytech.com, I-N-E-R-G-Y-T-E-K.com. Sean, Arnold, thank you both so much for being here. Best of luck with all your continued progress. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again. 